Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted with the finest materials for irresistible comfort every single night. Now, save up to $800 on select adjustable mattress sets only at StearnsAndFoster.com. Lesser savings may apply. I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. John G makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Johnji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to johnji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at johnji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. I'm actually going to kick this off by telling you a story. Okay. So one day I got a text from a neighbor down the street, Mm -hmm. and she wrote, Good morning. Decided to take an early walk and discovered a little baby squirrel in the street in front of your house. Aw. Used some boards to get it out of the road. Didn't want to leave it, but also didn't want to scare the mom away. Can you check on it but not get too close? And then she, she also sent you a picture of a very cute baby squirrel holding on to a little piece of wood. I feel like it looks almost like, um, you know, in Titanic when, uh, <laughs> what's her name, Rose, is like grasping onto like a little door for dear yeah, life. Yeah, exactly. So what I did was I called a wildlife rehabilitator mm-hmm. and they told me to keep it warm and hydrated. So I put in a little shoe box with some hand towels and a little dish of water. Oh, and you made a video. There's the squirrel trying to get out of your nice little shoebox shelter. So my hope, or our hope, was that the mom squirrel would find this baby squirrel. But, you know, I was checking in on them throughout the whole day, and the mom never came. Oh. So then, finally, I called the wildlife rehabilitator again for advice. I'm like, the mom's not coming. What would we do? And they're like, okay, there's this one thing you can try. It's a long shot. Yeah. But basically, if you put a Bluetooth speaker next to the baby squirrel and play a YouTube video of a crying Uh squirrel at the highest volume, the mom squirrel might hear that and then come to that noise, find the baby, and carry them back to the nest. No way. Talk about like how like wild this is. Like we're kind of hijacking the natural communication between a mom and a child, right? Yeah. Okay, so you did it. You had to have done it. Yeah, so here's the video of what happened. We did what was recommended by the wildlife rehabilitator. Here we are playing the YouTube clip of a crying baby squirrel. So across the street, grainy zoom in. And is that the mother squirrel? It worked. 
going into the box and grabbing the baby squirrel. Did it grab it? <laughs> it worked. There she goes. She got her baby back. Yeah, like that was, it was very satisfying. It was a very satisfying ending. That is a very satisfying. I'll be honest with you, Felix. I did not expect the mother squirrel to come back. I was like, this is just gonna be kind of a sad ending. But I can't believe that it actually worked. I'm Nate Hedgie here with producer Felix Boone, and today we have another edition of the Outside Inbox. And our theme for this set of mailbag questions is aptly communication and the natural world. We've got stories about how sharks smell underwater and whether plants are actually talking to each other. So... Since you kicked us off with a story about wildlife communication between parent and child, let's move on to another related question, which was answered by Outside In producer Jung Yoon Han. The question reads, how do birds, whales, and other migratory animals communicate to younger generations about how or where to migrate? This sounds like a a Pixar movie, right? Like, Like the Finding Nemo sequel. I imagine that's not how that actually usually goes. So the thing is, there's actually a lot we don't really know about migration in general, let alone how animals communicate to their littlelings throughout it. <laughs> littlelings, I love that. <laughs> uh, it, it's also tough because there are so many different species that migrate from fish to crustaceans to mammals, amphibians, reptiles, insects. Mm-hmm. So there won't be one universal answer to this question. Right. Some animals, too, it's more instinctual. And then for others, it's mm-hmm. more of a learned behavior. What do you mean by that? Well, for example, I talked with Patrick Bihom, who's a lecturer at the Novia University of Applied Sciences in Finland. He's a population ecologist who specializes in bird research. He says in many species, the young just follow along, but others hmm. simply know where to go without ever having done it before and without following a flock or anything. Like cuckoos, for example, the the parents don't communicate in any way. Cuckoos lay eggs in other birds' nests, and um, then they young have to migrate on their own. Oh, so some, some, some birds don't even have to travel with their parents. That's right. Another example of animals that don't communicate explicitly about migration are the monarch butterflies when they travel from across the U.S. westward and down to Mexico. So how do they know where they're going? Well, monarchs navigate using the sun, Mm -hmm. and there's also some evidence that they have a sort of magnetic compass built into their antennae, so they can go in the right direction even if it's cloudy. Some whales and birds have similar magnetic senses too, but again, that doesn't mean there isn't a learned component to, if that makes sense. Yes, yeah, it sounds like it's a really hard area to research. Right. I mean, there are some pretty interesting behaviors that we've observed, though. Patrick and his team published a paper last year about this one bird, Caspian Terns. Before they did the study, no one really knew much about how the birds migrated. But they used GPS trackers to observe their migration journey from northern Europe to Africa. And it turned out it seemed to be in this species, at least, then the males or the fathers. Uh, it was on their responsibility to learn the young, uh, the secrets of migration. 
So what he told me is that male turns exhibit what researchers call teaching behavior. Hmm. What that means is they lead the way in showing their young where to rest and where to feed. And for the most part, the young birds use the same stopover sites for future migration journeys, too. Cool. The research also showed that young turns who did not follow an adult male to learn how to migrate had a higher mortality rate than the ones that did. That goes to show you. Listen to your parents. Listen to your older generations. They know stuff. They know some things. And this is pretty new research, right? Yeah, this is all stuff that researchers never knew about before. And while Patrick is still figuring out more of the nitty gritty of how this migration process works, he sees it as, you know, a nice reminder of how much more there is to learn and discover about how animals behave. We believe that we know something, but then when we actually start digging in, into these questions, you really realize how little you know. Sounds like being a journalist. <laughs> Learning every day. That's what we do. Okay, so now to leave the animal kingdom completely, I want to talk about plants. Felix, you answered this next question we got about plant communication. Yeah, it's from Jenna in Cupertino, California. I'm calling to ask how do plants communicate with each other? And how is this communication defined within the human world? Like, could it technically be considered talking? Let's start with the fact that plants are constantly sensing the world around them. They have special receptors that sense light, touch, even gravity. Mm -hmm. And they have ways to communicate by releasing and sensing volatile organic compounds, also known as smells. Plants don't have noses, but they are also extremely sensitive to chemicals in their environment. So this is Richard Carbon, who studies plant communication at the University of California, Davis. And he says any time a bug munches on some leaves, or even when you mow the grass, those damaged tissues can release a smell that signals danger to other nearby plants. And when those nearby plants catch a whiff, they're like, uh-oh, everybody to your stations. The plants can produce more things that we think are defensive, such as chemicals that reduce the nutritional value of those plants, or chemicals that act as toxins and interfere with uh, physiological processes of the insects. That's some pretty cool self-defense. Yeah, totally. And plants can also communicate underground through their roots, like the roots of one plant can emit chemicals that stop the root growth of other plants around them. They're like, hey, I got here first. This is my spot. Yeah, and plants can also be cooperative, I found this one study where they put pairs of plants close together in a lab. One was watered and the other was dehydrated to simulate stress from a drought. And if the two plants' root systems were touching, then both plants would conserve water by closing the pores on their leaves. Even in the plant that was watered? Yeah, but if the two root systems weren't touching, this didn't happen. Maybe this is a good segue into our listener's question. I mean, can this be considered talking? Richard Carbon doesn't think so. I think that maybe a better analogy would be to say that they're eavesdropping on what's happening to their neighbors. Or one could say they're leaves dropping. <laughs> Couldn't help myself. So Richard is saying it's more of a mechanical reaction than it is talking. Like, I'm a plant. There's chemicals in the air and in the soil. 
And these chemicals set off some reaction in me that helps me survive and reproduce. Right. But recently, a group of scientists recorded the sounds that tomato and tobacco plants make when they're stressed by dehydrating them or cutting them. It's a cool beat. Normally, we can't hear these noises because they're outside the frequency that humans can hear. But theoretically, bats, rodents, and some insects could hear them. But the big question is, can other plants respond to these sounds? There is an older study that showed that they can. Specifically, they showed that the roots of young corn plants will bend toward the sound that other corn plants make when they're grown in water. That kind of feels like talking or maybe whispering. There are scientists who would call this talking, like the author of the corn roots experiment. Richard Carbon still disagrees, but it doesn't seem to diminish the sense of admiration he has for plants. We're learning that plants are in fact capable of really sophisticated behaviors. And the extent of those behaviors is, you know, really not very well known. That's a cutting edge of, of what we know about. You know what plants are really good at, Felix? What? It's giving me allergies. Yeah, me too. That's why I'm God. stuffing. <laughs> they're, they're communicating to us. Stuff up your they're nose. They're communicating Stuff to us. Stuff up the yeah, human exactly. noses. <laughs> If you've got a question about the natural world, you can call us at 1-844-GO-OTTER or record yourself on your phone and email it to us at outsideinradio at nhpr.org. Or you can send us your thoughts and feedback on an episode that you listen to. Kaylin listened to our Sound and Silence episode and wrote, I spend months buying white noise machines, noise-canceling curtains, earplugs, you name it. We also heard from Deborah, who wrote, Thanks so much for your recent episode about dog poop. It has helped settle a disagreement between me and my mother. Deborah was leaving her dog's poop in the woods, not knowing about its ecological harms until she listened to our episode. Now she says she picks them up religiously. Send us an email if we can help you settle a family disagreement. We're at outsideinradio at nhpr.org. Still to come in the second half, can sharks smell underwater? We'll be back with that and more right after the break. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted with the finest materials for irresistible comfort every single night. Now, save up to $800 on select adjustable mattress sets only at StearnsAndFoster.com. Lesser savings may apply. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Welcome back to Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie, here today with producer Felix Poon. And we are talking all about communication in the natural world. Nate, do you have any stories about communication in the natural world? I have a friend who made a whole movie about how whales communicate. It's on Apple TV. 
shameless plug fathom the movie's called fathom i feel like that's very much in the popular discourse these days whales talking and ramming boats those orcas ramming boats communicating yeah. to each other wearing sam dead salmon on their heads as hats <laughs> <laughs> look that up y'all look up the uh the the orca that wore a dead salmon for a hat <laughs> Okay, anyways, let's Moving on. let's move on to our next listener question answered by our very own Taylor Quimby. And today we've got a surprisingly deep question from ZPerson50 on Instagram who asked us, what makes an animal a pest? Ooh. Do you have any pest problems, Nate? Not right now, no. Um, our dog kills mice. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, interestingly, I discovered the word pest was not originally used for animals at all. Hmm. It comes from pestis, the Latin word for plague. Ah, that makes uh, that makes sense. Yeah. But eventually usage opened up and we now refer to lots of things as pests. So to get a better sense of how it applies to animals specifically, I called up Bethany Brookshire, a science journalist and author of the book Pests, How Humans Create Animal Villains. <laughs> That's a great title. She says that Simple definition, a pest is an animal that bothers humans, but actually... What pests are is they're a reflection of us. They're a reflection of what we want and what we believe about our environments. What? I don't understand. Well, what she's saying is that, like, whether an animal is or is not a pest has everything to do with people and very little to do with that animal. So uh, let me give a couple examples. First one is pigeons, which I know you love. Yes, I do. Very impressed by pigeons. And and once upon a time, lots of people loved pigeons. They were our most common domesticated birds. Really? Yeah. Oh, we you know there was messenger pigeons. We used their poo for fertilizer. We ate them. Their meat was called squab. Huh. But nowadays we've replaced all those uses for pigeons with other technologies and other foods, and now they are pests. Oh, bad rap for pigeons. There's actually a study that tracked mentions of pigeons in the New York Times from 1850. To 2006. And they go from starting as innocent, beautiful, charming to rats with wings. And it was only a hundred years. I don't know, I feel like I feel like we kind of let pigeons down, you know? Yeah. That's a uh, that's a sad storyline. It is. Okay, so example number two, the Burmese python, which by the way, is considered threatened in its native habitat. This is southern and southeast Asia. But I don't know if you've ever heard uh, pythons in the Florida Everglades. Burmese pythons are invasive and evil and need to leave so badly that every year there is an organized hunt where they send hundreds of dudes, mostly dudes, out into the Everglades in trucks coated in floodlights trying to kill them. So again, you know, geographically speaking, you're looking at the same animal, two different places in the world, very different labels that we stick on them, right? Right. And my final example um, from Bethany is about pests versus pets. Both cats and rats can wreak havoc when they're introduced to ecosystems that aren't uh, used to them, right? Mm -hmm. And in fact, Bethany says the cats are at least partially responsible for the extinction of 63 species and counting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you have a cat as a pest, uh, often we're trying to trap and neuter and return or adopt them out. Right. But if it's a rat problem, we just poison them all and try and deal with it that way. The difference between those two is not in what the animal is doing, right? The difference is in what we believe about those two animals. It's all in the mind of of the person who's looking at said animal. Like we're buying this house in the Rocky Mountain front sure. and we were going through like the uh, kind of disclosures and everything and there's a a line there that says are there any pests in the property and it said yes, gophers. 
And I was like, oh, I don't really think of gophers as pests. But if you're a rancher, mm. a gopher digs holes, it can trip up your cattle, everything else like that. And so to them, they are pests. Right, exactly. So I asked Bethany, is there any animal that you found in doing the research for this book that is universally seen as a pest everywhere in the world? And she told me, no. Even rats, there is, for example, a temple in India where the black rat is worshipped. So there you go. Oh, man. All rats should go there. That's that's their, uh, that's their safe space. <laughs> rats, do we have a vacation spot for you? <laughs> All right. So for our last listener question today, we've got producer Jessica Hunt. Well, this question comes from Instagram, and the listener asks, and I'm paraphrasing here, what are shark noses for? How do they work underwater, and what does it mean to smell something in the ocean? Jessica, honestly, I didn't know that sharks had noses. And I'm an environmental reporter. I'm supposed to know these things, right? I'm so glad to hear you say that, Nate. (laughs) Because I, too, was like, do they? That's what these are for. Let's <laughs> let's find out. Let's find out. Why do they have noses? So the reason smell carries underwater is because water is a fluid, and air is a fluid medium as well. Mm-hmm. Odors can be transported on water currents, just like through air currents. Of course. Okay. All we're doing with smell is detecting and decoding chemical signals in the air or water. But say you're walking along and you smell smoke. You might not see it, but you have some sense, whether it's near or far, and you might be able to follow that smell right to the source. And you might even know whether it's a hamburger or a bonfire, some wood burning that's going on. Oh, yeah, like drive by a Burger King, (laughs) and any Burger King in America, and you get a whiff of that flame-broiled burger. Right. But sharks, they've got different gear. So to learn more, I talked with Dr. Stephen Kajura, He's a professor and head of the shark lab at Florida Atlantic University. Do sharks have whiskers? They don't have whiskers, but they do have little nostrils. They're on either side of the head, on the ventral surface, on the bottom side of the head, or on the front of the head. And they're like little holes. So you know how sharks have to keep moving their whole lives, keeping the water flowing through their mouths to the gills? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the water is also going in these special nostrils, Mm -hmm. and they're called the incurrent nares. Then it flows over their olfactory organ, and that gives them a constant flow of information. It allows them to detect whether something smells good, something smells bad, or warns them that perhaps this is not a good environment. Remember how I said you can use your nose to follow the smell of a barbecue? Yeah, yeah. Sharks do the same thing in the water. And they can use their nostrils for direction because they're on either side of their heads. So smell coming from the left will hit their left nostril first, And they'll head in that direction if they're interested. And if they have their nostrils spaced far apart like a hammerhead shark, for example, with the nostrils spaced on either side of this big giant head, that might give them better directional sensitivity. Or if they're swimming in a zigzag pattern with this great sense of smell, they can home in on the source of the odor. And shark noses are insanely sensitive. They can sense blood or animal smells up to a mile or more away. Wow. Yeah. So, so why is their sense of smell so acute? Because the ocean can sometimes be a murky habitat, and if they can't see their prey, they've got to rely on some other sense. They've survived a long time, in part because they're so good at detecting odor. 
Sharks are near the base of the vertebrate branch of the evolutionary tree. The ability to detect odors in the water has been so important for animals throughout our evolutionary history. And we just transitioned to the point where we're the ones on land smelling odors. We're the, uh, <laughs> we're the unusual ones. We're the ones who've had to adapt to this terrestrial environment when, in fact, the original odor detectors were, were aquatic. They got OG noses. Exactly, exactly. That's what it seems to be. Like, they're sometimes called swimming noses because their sense of smell is so amazing. Felix, is there any animal attribute that you think is is exceptionally amazing, like a shark's nose? I mean, fireflies. Yeah, that is fascinating. Luminescent hey, butts. Do us a favor. Send us in a question about fireflies and their luminescent butts, because <laughs> I want to know more about that. That does it for today's episode about communication in or about the natural world. And if you like the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. And you can hit us up on social media. We're at Outside In Radio. I'm your host, Nate Hedgie. And this episode was reported and produced by Felix Poon, Jung Yoon Han, Taylor Quimby, and Jessica Hunt. It was edited by Taylor Quimby. Our team also includes Justine Paradise. Our executive producer is Rebecca Lavoie. Special thanks to Lonnie Asuncion for saving a baby squirrel with me and to Angus Murphy for talking to me about talking plants. Outside In's theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Additional music from Blue Dot Sessions, Jules Gaia, John Bjork, John Runefeld, Timothy Infinite, and Jari. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Stearns and Foster mattress is handcrafted with the finest materials for irresistible comfort every single night. Now save up to $800 on select adjustable mattress sets only at StearnsandFoster.com. Lesser savings may apply. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.